I want to read to you one of the shortest psalms in the book of Psalms today. And uh, we're continuing the series which we began uh, towards the beginning of this lockdown season in which we began to open up some of the psalms as uh, songs in the dark, an opportunity to give voice to the prayers and emotions and um, the kind of state of heart in which we might find ourselves, to find words that that arise like prayers to God and enable us to also then perceive our situation differently as a result or as a consequence. And the Psalms, of course, the prayer book of the church, are have lived in the mouths of saints for centuries and in fact for millennia for the simple reason that they give voice to every aspect of human experience. They're profoundly deep in terms of the psychology and understanding of the human heart. But they're also full of faith and they, they, they bring us to a place where we can see God afresh. And I want to therefore continue the series. And we're going to read um, the 131st Psalm. If you're on the video, you can scroll down, of course, to just below the video. You'll see the text of the Psalm. And I want to read to you. It's only three verses long, just a few lines of text. And then we'll begin to open it up and understand its meaning to us. It says this, Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, The reason we're opening up this particular psalm is because I think it addresses one of the most fundamental questions that we need to be thinking about at this season, but in any season, which is the question of how to have a settled mind, how to have a heart that's at peace, how to know a real um, tranquility, even serenity in life, despite or in spite of the chaos that may often face us. And of course, the reason why I want to ask this question, it's not difficult to guess why it's important, but I think it's partly, part of the answer is because of the present crisis that we're facing right now, which raises all kinds of questions. It raises all kinds of uncertainties about the future. And it throws many of us into a sense of turmoil and our lives have been disrupted in ways that, that we haven't experienced before uh, in living memory. So, of course, that's, that's a part of the answer. But I'm also deeply aware that for some of you, if anything, this, this season of lockdown has had the opposite effect. If anything, it's, it's allowed you to enjoy something of a, a change from the norm and the idea of the lockdown lifting and going back to the norm is what intimidates you because the sense of anxiety, the sense of distress or the sense of having an unsettled heart predates this present crisis. And I'm aware that's true in society at large. I'm conscious that um, the the conversations around people's uh, sense of peace in life and their sense of tranquility or happiness or calm, that conversation has grown more and more prominent because so much of modern life seems to militate against us experiencing anything like that kind of level of peace. And so some of you are thinking back to to what it was like three, four months ago and the things you're facing, you're like, I don't want to go back to that. It's like that feeling first of September when you're going back to school as a kid and you feel that pit in your stomach and you don't want to go back to it because life isn't isn't easy even when it's supposed to be easy 
And there are all kinds of things that are disturbing our sense of peace, that we live in this hyper-connected world, that we're more informed than we've ever been before, that there are so many thoughts flooding in, disturbing our minds at any given moment, that we feel an, a plethora of options in terms of the way we could and should live and the things we can do with our lives. And for all these reasons, turmoil can be the defining reality of the way you experience life. And I'm aware of this. I think it explains why we've seen such a rise in advice and wisdom and practices and experts and books and fads as a way to mitigate this very problem. And it, 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 this, this was going on long before we faced this particular crisis that we're going through now. And so the language of this psalm where David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul, that language speaks to us. We understand immediately the yearning to have a calmed and quieted soul. It makes sense to us. Now, Having said that, I think we need to note the the poignancy that this particular psalm is written by this man, David. His life had gone on a dramatic arc or journey from a state of very simple living. Um, it's the kind of lifestyle which I fantasize about occasionally when life just seems a little bit too much right now and responsibilities seem too heavy. He had a life once upon a time when he was a teenager of just in the fields with his sheep. Of course, it was tough. I'm not saying it was easy, but it was very simple. It was straightforward. His day-to-day -day responsibilities were not complicated. It's like, you know, switching off from the complexity of life. And that was his experience at one point. But he'd gone through, he'd gone through a sequence of life experiences that had layered him with different responsibilities, different stresses, different crises that he'd been through from obscurity and simplicity. He'd become famous uh, through the killing of Goliath. Then he'd experienced fear for his life when King Saul had, had become jealous of him and wanted to kill him. He'd eventually ascended himself to the throne in line with the promise that God had made over his life. Then when he's on the throne, it's not like his life got simple. Not only did he have the day-to-day -day responsibilities, he also experienced rebellions from his own sons. He went through a dark, dark season where he committed adultery and his life was almost ruined entirely. And even in his dying days, one of more of his sons took the throne, kind of usurped the throne, and there was a final kind of power battle that took place in David's life. He never knew a season where it was totally just serene and at peace. And for these, you know, when you think about his life, the arc, the journey that he'd gone on, Derek Kidner, who who written a commentary on the psalm, said this. He said, this particular psalm, it wakens memories of his early modesty, simplicity, and lack of rancor among the qualities which helped to make him great. And we can see David, potentially an old man, praying this psalm, wanting, in a sense, to recover and restore what used to be true of him, the sweetness of living on the hill with his harp, which was the ancient equivalent of Spotify, and just enjoying music and singing to God. And there he was, living a very complex life, and imagining and recalling and praying to God and restoring that kind of state of heart. So what is he teaching us then? What is David teaching us? I think the answer is this, that even though his life had grown more complex, he's teaching us the secret, I suppose, to peace in all circumstances. That even if he'd left peaceful circumstances for difficult ones, he knew what it meant to recover peace in the midst of crisis and turmoil and, 
and mess, essentially. And you ask, well, how? And I think the answer that the psalm gives to us, which is a profound answer, which comes through elsewhere in Scripture also, is through the fostering of a childlike spirit. That is David's key. That's his solution, as it were, to the challenges that he was facing, that he was fostering a childlike spirit, which means that he wasn't, this, this particular psalm is in, in no way a desire to shirk his responsibilities, though they were heavy, nor is it a prayer for God to deliver him from the, the crises he may have been facing at the time. But what it is, it's all about his state of heart. It's all about an inner change or an inner transformation that can happen in you, which means that you can know peace and a different way of feeling and a different way of seeing and a different posture which enables you to face life, this childlike spirit. And so what I want to do as we understand this psalm is, is do two things. Firstly, I want us to just ask the question, well, what is this childlike spirit? What does the psalm teach us about it? What is, what is it in its different facets? And we're going to have a few answers to that. But then I want to ask the crucial question, well, then how do you foster this? How do you live this way? So let's begin with this first question. What is this childlike simplicity that David is speaking to us about and advocating and praying for. And I would define it very simply as a right way of being related to God, a right way of being related to him as your father and in which you are very deeply conscious of your limitations as a child. And of course, this, as I said, seems to have more power and potency, this idea when it's on the lips of one of the more powerful men in the world at the time who is carrying a weight of responsibility on his shoulders, and yet he says, I'm a child, because of his relationship with God. And that consciousness of his limitations, that being brought down to size, is profoundly liberating for David and enables him to be equipped and prepared to face all the things that he was facing. Now, I want us to understand this a little bit more then this childlike simplicity. And there are a few things that this psalm shows us in each of its verses about different dimensions of what this is. Let's, let's consider what they are then. The first way you can think of this childlike simplicity is as humility. And look at the first verse. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous to me. Now, if anybody had reason for pride to be inflated about their sense of how great they are and what they'd accomplished and the things that they were responsible for and in control of, it was David. If anyone could say that they'd grown from childhood to to full-grown adulthood, it was David. He'd been chosen out of obscurity, the youngest of all his brothers, the overlooked child, God had put his finger on this man. He'd experienced extraordinary success as a king. And for all these reasons, he could have patted himself on the back and thought of himself as something great. But he understands what you and I must understand, which is that pride is at the root of so much of our daily unhappiness, our daily stress, our daily anxiety. Pride is often at the root of those experiences, of those emotions in life. And you ask the question, why? What is pride? Pride is this, the inflation of your view of yourself and the disparagement of others or looking down upon others. And what that does is it positions you in a place where not only do you, you want to absorb and take care and take control of everything around you, You also think you know best. 
And then you look down upon others and think that others are less competent or less use, useful or that you have better answers than other people. And this kind of, this pride exposes itself in our lives and the emotions that we feel on a day-to-day basis. If we feel anger towards the circumstances or things that other people are doing, if we feel frustration about things that we want to change around us, if we feel dismay or judgment about the actions of others, and that, you know, we need look no further than the social media commentary. You know, most of us didn't even know what the word pandemic meant two months ago. And suddenly, and there's only a handful of experts in the country, but suddenly every man and his dog has become an expert on what Britain should do and what is the right course of action in the midst of this. And we think, what is that? That's human pride. We all love to elevate our opinion of ourselves and our own abilities and disparage others. And it leads to all this rancor of soul. It leads to all the stresses that you experience in day-to-day life where you want to grab and take control of responsibility and situations and not, not trust others and, and where you feel the weight and the burden upon you. And it's pride. It's pride. And David commends instead of that this, this really amazing sense of humility where he says, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous to me. I don't think he's speaking about burying his head from his responsibilities or having a kind of naive optimism about life. I don't think it's that. I think it's simply this. As I said, it's it's being rightly related to God in which your knowledge of God, your relationship with him means that he is great and you're small. That there are things that you can let go of and say, this is beyond me. This is beyond my control. This is beyond my understanding. And that that is an extraordinary way of experiencing peace in life because this humility releases you essentially from the pride of having to know the answers, having to take control, having to be something, have to do something. It's God. God's in charge. This childlike simplicity is then humility. Let me show you a second aspect of this that he shows us. It's also contentment. And this is where the analogy or the metaphor becomes very vivid for us in the second verse where he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, if you haven't um, yet had the joy of raising children, then you may not fully grasp what was being spoken about here. But when a baby is born, they're born with a powerful instinct to start sucking as, you know, find the teat as quickly as possible. And they have a tiny stomach. It's the size of a cherry, which means that they want to fill the stomach and it's quickly filled, but just as quickly it seems to empty, which is why newborn babies cry seemingly all day long and all the way through the night. They're hungry, they're filled, and then they're hungry again. And there's no end. It's just a constant cycle until eventually they begin to stretch out their feeds and then you start to feel something like a joy. And it's nothing like the moment when you start to give them solid food. And we did this early with all of our children, probably because my wife loves her sleep, I think. But we, get, we gave them solid food as quickly as possible. And the, the miracle of them eating solid food is that suddenly they feel satiated. They feel contented. They're happy. They, they, they can go for hours at a time without needing you in the same way. They can be with you. They can just enjoy you as a, as a mother or as a father without demanding from you. They're content, in other words. 
Now, this sets up the contrast for us, doesn't it, with two kinds of people. How we can go through life and some of us can be more like the squalling baby. You, you know moments of contentment and happiness, but the dominant theme is an obsession with the things that you don't have. An obsession with the things that you think you need or desire. The things that God hasn't yet given to you. Or the things that you imagine will make your life much, much better. But it seems that if you go back through your past history, everything else that you thought you needed that was absolutely essential to your happiness and which you eventually received didn't answer. It was like your stomach was filled for a second and then it was empty again and you needed to go back and you're squalling and you're crying and you're discontent and you're unhappy and you're not at peace. And of course, the opposite of that is the serenity that we're speaking about of contentment. Contentment in the scriptures is often viewed as one of the crucial fundamental aspects of living a happy life, living a peaceful life. And it's advocated very powerfully in the scriptures. But one of the things that I'm utterly convinced of is that it has much less to do with your circumstances and the things that you enjoy in life and much more to do with a state of heart. And I say this because through observation as a pastor, I've witnessed people who have been, who've wrestled with discontent and who've longed for certain things in life, certain milestones that they've wanted to, to reach or things they wanted to possess, but upon possessing them have not been any happier. I've known people move countries because they imagined that their life would be more happy and idyllic somewhere else. And then upon moving, finding that they brought all their problems with them, all their discontent with them. I've seen this play out and it underlines for us that contentment is much more a state of heart than it is of circumstance. You can see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, who, as I've said to you, uh, many times lived this life that was full of uncertainty, that sometimes he was being taken care of and knew ample provision, staying with wealthy benefactors like Lydia and Philippi, who was a businesswoman and supported his ministry. And at other times he knew real moments of need and of not knowing where his next meals come from. And he, he says this in, in the book, uh, in the letter to the Philippians, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Do you hear that? In whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In other words, I can have nothing and I could have everything But his happiness, he says, isn't dependent on it. In fact, he says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can very well imagine how absolutely essential this was for Paul to learn because of the, the particular pattern of life that he'd embarked on when Jesus plucked him out from Phariseeism, convinced him that he was the savior of the world and then sent him on mission to the Gentiles and he traveled all around the world. That life did not lend itself to stability, to the kind of acquisition and the building up of, of, of life goals, a wife and then kids and a house and all these kinds of things. It did not lend itself to those things. And in fact, he dies single, childless, without any property to his name, except a cloak and a few scrolls, you know, passionate about books. What can I say? That's all he died with. And yet he says, I'm content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His happiness didn't didn't rely upon the stuff of life. He was like the weaned child with its mother. When you think about the image of the weaned child with its mother, you know, when that depicts what how we can know God, it means that 
our relationship with God is not going to be all about asking him for stuff. And it's good to ask him for things. He's a father who's generous. But if you only ever come to him with your complaints, with your lack, with your desperate need for the next thing, you'll never know peace. And the image of this child is of a contented child who just enjoys his mother. It's what it means to be content in the presence of God. You enjoy God, perhaps for the first time. This comes through also in Hebrews 13, where he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can, be, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I want to show you a third aspect of what this simplicity is. This childlike simplicity is humility, it's contentment, but it's also trust. And this comes through in this final verse of the psalm where he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is a a kind of pastor to the entire nation, the most devout perhaps among them. He led them not only physically in terms of governance and militarily in terms of protecting the nation but he also seemed to have this leadership position spiritually and what he wanted to model to everyone under his care as a pastor to his people is trust in God trust in him and you'll know this contentment this serenity this peace this total tranquility of heart now I want you to think about yourself for a second You were not made to carry the weight of the world upon your shoulders. And if anybody could have said that they were carrying that kind of weight, it was this man, David. He was, he bore more responsibility than you or I will ever understand, ever. He felt that the the destiny of the nation rested upon him. He felt that their well-being, that whether their children would be fed or would starve, whether they would be conquered and and experience military conquest and rape by enemies or whether they would be at peace. All these things that seem to rest upon him. And yet, if he asked himself the question, where does the buck stop? I don't think he understood it to stop with him. You know, when when I imagine the responsibilities right now, it's very much in our face, isn't it, of national leaders who have to make decisions in the light of very confusing information. And each of them taking a different course of action and how they must lie awake at night, feeling the weight of responsibility, wondering, have I made the right call? Feeling that the buck stops with them. I suggest to you that that position is untenable and unsustainable if you really believe the buck stops with you. In other words, if there's no one above you. Many of us live our lives functionally that way. We live as though there's no one above us as though you are carrying the weight of the world upon your shoulders. And David is saying, that's not how you get through. That's not how you know peace. He knew that as much as God had given him to do, ultimately he lived with a consciousness of the God who was over him, who loved him and cared for him. Do you feel the weight of the world upon your shoulders? Do you lie awake at night? Worrying about things? Do you obsess about things that you want to understand or control or sort out? 
If these things are true of you, it may be the case that you're carrying this weight in an incorrect way. And really what this psalm is showing us is that no matter how important you are or may become in the days ahead, the perspective of the psalmist, the perspective of the devout person, should be one in which we are shrunk down to size. In which even if your decisions feel enormous, basically you're a child when you know God. And I, you know, I have the great joy of watching my children and seeing the laughter, the carefree laughter and playfulness of children because they don't have much to worry about. There are flashes and moments when I see one of my children becoming anxious. This particular child is a very responsible child. You know, if they're going to go stay at grandparents, this child will pack a bag not only for themselves but also for sibling uh, with toothbrush. And, and I'm not telling you which child it is because I know they're watching right now. But, the, but this is how responsible this child is. And, and at that moment, I just want to say, no, we're caring for you. We are parents. Understand that you're a child and just enjoy your life. And this is the position, the posture, the state of heart that David's talking about, this humility, this contentment, and this trust. And friend, you know in an instant whether that's true of you. Just, just look inside. Are you at peace or not? Do you have this childlike simplicity of heart? This is what he's describing for us. But so far, all we've managed to do is describe it. And I want to ask this question, well, how then do you get it? How do you foster and grow and develop this childlike posture? Let me just rule out a few negatives here so that we can understand what the scriptures actually say to us on this subject. The first negative is this, that it's not through disengagement or escape from the responsibilities of life. And of course, it's true that children don't carry much responsibility, but a good parent also knows how to put just enough on their child so as to help them to grow in maturity. And they know when to do that and what they can handle at any given moment. And the scriptures are very clear. Basically, everything's in God's control. But for reasons that are beyond my understanding, God chooses to use you and me in our various callings and work and the responsibility he's given us. And that was his pattern all the way since the beginning of the creation. He made the world, he said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the planet. And of course, when we go about our daily calling in life, the things that we are working for to the glory of God, we're exercising the responsibility over the things that he's given to us. Some of it's in the home, some of it's out of the home. All of it is a gift from God. But the thing is that God doesn't give you in that sense more than He knows that you are able to accomplish. He won't call you to something which he isn't also going to equip you for. You think about Moses, how God said to him, go back to Egypt and deliver my people. And he wanted to wriggle out from under that responsibility because he didn't trust God. He said, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I don't know what to do. And God, God, God did what he needed to do to get Moses in the right state of heart. Moses had to understand God will equip you. God would equip him for the call that he was called to And this is true of us as well. Yes, you have responsibilities, but God has given you everything you need to fulfill them. And he won't abandon you any more than I would abandon one of my children to face something impossible or difficult. And besides, the idea that we're just talking here about escapism from problems wouldn't help us in any case. I remember last year we we took the kids to France on holiday. And in the middle of the night, I woke with a fright 
because uh, my wife was, she grabbed hold of one of my feet. She was stood up at the end of the bed. She grabbed my foot and was shaking me. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. And I, it was three in the morning. I woke up, well, with a, with a shock, with a, with, with a little bit of, my heart was racing. It wasn't a very pleasant experience. And then she began to tell me what had happened, which made the situation even worse. She'd gotten up because she heard one of the kids crying. And then when she was walking back through the home in which we were staying, she felt a sharp sting in her foot. And then she saw something scurry across the floor and she switched on the light and she and then she ran through to the room and said to me, Andrew, Andrew, I think I stepped on a scorpion. And sure enough, when I got out of bed, there was a scorpion on the floor. What did I do? As any man would in that situation, I got a glass and put it over the scorpion and left the thing alone. But the thing is, then I went to bed and all I could think of was, well, how strong are scorpions? Can they perhaps lift the glass off, off them? Is this scorpion going to be there in the morning when I'm there? This is what happens if we try and just simply disengage from our problems. They're still there. They're still gnawing at us at the back of our minds. And so David isn't speaking here about a kind of peace which comes from disengagement or just, just neglect of responsibility. It's not that. It's an ability to tackle your responsibilities, but to still maintain that God's in control, which is a very different way of living than sheer neglect or disengagement. So it's not that. Here's the second thing it isn't. I don't think that he's advocating to us, and the scriptures never advocate to us, a kind of mere empty spiritual practices or quasi-spirituality as a way of dealing with our stress. And the reason why I point to this is because this has been the reaction in Western culture, hasn't it, over the last 10, 20 years or so, that as our lives have grown more, um, more complicated in certain ways and more with our attention frayed and our hearts more anxious and anxiety has been on the rise for various reasons, as that has happened, there has been a concurrent growth of interest in a secular world, essentially, a concurrent growth of interest in spiritual practices that are very often appropriated and absorbed from religions, uh, ancient religions, particularly Eastern religions. And you think about practices like um, various types of yoga and meditation and, and all kinds of things which are kind of absorbed into Western culture and repackaged and commercialized and turned into ways of managing your stress in the day-to-day. And what I want to suggest to you is that even if some of these practices occasionally have elements that will be helpful Fundamentally, they can't deal with the root. They're godless practices, and therefore they can't deal with your soul problems. And it reminds me a little bit of, you know, I've known on occasion when uh, people have gone through cancer, one of the things that you do in the, when you're panicking with, with a diagnosis like cancer, particularly if it's a serious one, is you Google every possible solution that you can find to dealing with the cancer. And so one of the answers that will come up pretty quickly is try juicing. Find an array of vegetables and fruit and blend them and miraculously you're going to be cured of your cancer. Now, juicing may be helpful at some level, if only at the psychological level of convincing you that you're doing something about the problem. But it's not going to heal you of cancer. I'm sorry to deliver the bad news there. But this, this, is, this is quasi-science, just as so many of these practices we have it, we, have, we have grabbed onto a quasi-spirituality and they cannot possibly deal with the fundamental heart issue of why you're not at peace. I also want to rule out a third option, which is religion. 
I don't think that we can find this childlike spirit of simplicity through being religious. And that might surprise you because here I'm as a pastor trying to speak to you about a way, a path forward in this. Now, if anything, I would say religion is part of the problem and not the solution. And I tell you why. And I'm, I mean religion defined as a system of morality and a pathway in life in which you make progress and attain some kind of sense of feeling better about yourself or hoping that you'll get the pleasure of God on your life by those means. And really, it can only result in one of two situations. Either you excel. And some people are naturally have a, a, a particular makeup that, 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 that enables them to excel as religiously devout people. And certainly the Apostle Paul was one of those people before he became a Christian. And all it did in his life and all it does in us is just puff us up with pride and conceit and independence, self-sufficiency. So the very thing that we need, this childlike spirit, is the very thing that's destroyed by becoming more religious. If anything, you just become more proud and arrogant. And also the flip side to this is other people have the opposite experience. All they're aware of is failure, guilt, the sense of never being good enough, of crashing and burning, and therefore religion makes the problem worse because they just have more to worry about. And so we're not talking about religion. What is it then that the scriptures tell us is the answer to this particular way of thinking and living, this childlike simplicity that we've been seeking to describe? And the answer is that it can only come through a living relationship with God as your father. That is the essence of the Christian faith. And I want to say, I want to underline, if I can, the word living, a living relationship. And I say that because some of you I know are not Christian. And whatever you have imagined Christianity to be, it probably hasn't been that. You've probably thought of Christianity in terms of its externals, in terms of the way of life, in terms of the practices, in terms of a few of the, the doctrines and beliefs. And you've asked yourself, could I, could I engage in this? Could I do these things? Could I believe these things? But if that's all that you see of Christianity, then you've missed the heart. The heart is the living relationship with God made possible by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for you. That he made it possible for you to be forgiven so that you could have intimacy with God and not feel the great breach, the great gap of your guilt and your shame. A living relationship. But I also say it because some of you are Christian and you've forgotten that this is the heart of your faith. For some reason, this easily can fall into the background in which we partake in the activities of a Christian life but neglect what it means to love God. You remember how Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He said, return to the love that you had at first. Remember what it means to, have, to walk with God, to know him. To be able to speak to him as a friend because you come to him clean and righteous because of Jesus Christ. And to know that intimacy on a day-to-day -day basis. And whenever you see a frayed Christian, whenever you see a Christian who seems weighed down in the life, whenever you see a Christian who, whose life has been become distracted by various idolatries and pursuits, you see someone who's neglected this living relationship with God, this love, this adoration, this worship. Now, I believe that the Christian gospel is the only way of fostering this kind of heart, 
this peace-filled, childlike heart. And I tell you why, because it has every element we need. That it tells us, first of all, about a great and mighty God. And we're not talking about a God who in some way can be shrunk down to our hopes and our imaginations about what he's like. We're talking about a God who is wholly other. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. He is far above us. And he is just. And he is a judge. And it is his greatness which then leads us to this understanding of our smallness, of our weakness, of our frailty. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. He's saying, in other words, you can't imagine that you can have a relationship with God by bending the shape of who you think God is to conform with your cultural expectations of what right and wrong are and to make your life somehow match his expectations. He says, oh no, the very contrary is true. God is so far above you, so holy, so just, and you have not a hope in hell of being near to him. That's what it means to be, ble- to be poor in heart. But then, but then, when we feel the greatness of this breach, of his enormity and our smallness, of his transcendence and of our limitations and weakness and frailties and sinfulness, a failure. This is when we turn to Jesus and understand that God, is, God who is love has provided for us in Jesus a way of breaching that gap. A way of knowing God as our Father where he is in no way diminished but at the same time we can draw near to him because Christ has made it possible for us to be clean, to be forgiven. This is why I think when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he said to them these very vivid words about what it means to become and to be a Christian. He said in Mark 10, he had some surrounded by children. He said, let the little children come to me. Remember, we're speaking about this childlike spirit. And he says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, Jesus teaches us that the way into the Christian life is through an absolute abasement of yourself in which you recognize you cannot save yourself. You become like a child, totally helpless, totally humbled. But it isn't not only the way into the Christian life, it's also the pathway through the Christian life. In fact, it's the way you progress in the Christian life. In every other field, you progress through greater competence, independence. But to grow maturity as a Christian is defined as reliance. You become more like a child, not just in the day-to-day, but in moment by moment, where the whole of your life is lived in dependence upon God, the consciousness of his greatness, the gratitude for the gift of a Savior in Jesus Christ, that contentment, that sweetness of spirit in which you say thank you in which you trust him for every good thing that he can provide for you. So I want to suggest as I close, if you feel like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, and certainly if anyone could have said that it was David, there's a very high likelihood that what you're doing is seeking to live in independence and self-sufficiency. And the call of this psalm, no matter what you're facing, 
is to come back to God with this childlike simplicity and to say, Father, I'm sorry. I repent of my pride. I repent of my discontentment. I repent of my independence and lack of trust in you. And I want to enjoy you again as a father. I want to invite Ramsey and Natalie to come and lead us in a response of worship. But as we do respond in this way, I think it'd be first be helpful for us to personally respond in prayer. I want to lead you in a moment to confess, but also to repent and then to hopefully to, to step into a, a different mindset today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are so tender with us. Just as a good father is tender with wayward children, children who don't get things at first, who are confused, you're tender with us. Lord, our great failing in life is our pride, our grumbling, our independence, our lack of trust. And it leads to all kinds of ugliness in our hearts. It leads to the anger, frustration that we feel. So we come to you again, Lord, and confess this. And ask for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to come near to us now and to lift off of us, Lord, the things that we shouldn't be carrying to remind us that you care. Teach us to pray this psalm. Sincerely, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. I pray for that wonderful sense of that transcendent Holy Spirit peace to come into every home now. Not mediated through a screen, but directly from you to the heart of each listener. I pray this in the name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.